morning. Did they already make the announcement about the children's nursery downstairs? Yes, you did? Okay. Well, you may have had the experience of eating at a Chinese restaurant or a Oriental restaurant and you know, eat some yummy food, and you know what's at the end, besides the bill, is they give you fortune cookies. You guys know what I'm talking about? And when you're there, you're, you're cracking them open, and you're, you're eager to read this one-liner that's going to change the rest of your life. And you're going to share that with your friends or your family or whoever you're, you're sitting with, there with. And, you know, usually it doesn't have anything to do with your life. Uh, but you do it anyway because it's kind of a fun thing. Well, back in my, uh, my single days, um, my roommate and I would joke a lot. And one of the things that we joked about was that we would start our own company to write fortune cookie one-liners. And we could sell them to these companies who make the cookies. And we had our favorite one-liner, which we always laughed about. And so imagine, you know, you had your meal, you open up your fortune cookie, and you get the one-liner. This is our favorite one. It says, you really should get that checked out. <laughs> so no matter how much of a hypochondriac you are, there's probably something somewhere out there that you're thinking, you know what, I should get that checked out by a doctor. And if that's not the case, I'm a hypochondriac, so I always got something. But if that's not the case, at some point in your life, you will have something that's significant of an issue that you want to get checked out. And you want a doctor to look at you and give you the prognosis and tell you what the treatment is. So imagine with me, you have a significant issue. You know that you know you gotta see someone to take care of this issue. And you do your research and you find out, really there's only one doctor that specializes in this issue. And in your research, you find out that this doctor is pretty controversial. In fact, he's so controversial, he has a death threat on his, on his life because of his practice. You've also heard about this doctor that all the people that have braved to go see him, to risk their reputation to be treated by this doctor, to be treated by his unusual methods and his practice, they've all been healed. Would you go to this doctor? Well, in this case, the doctor is Jesus. And the disease that you and I have, it's all there for all of us. It is sin. And Jesus is the only one who can cure it. Yet only those who are desperate enough to go to him will actually go. And if you're not desperate enough and you don't see yourself as sick, you may find excuses not to go or you'll try to find healing somewhere else. So if you look at the title of our time, at the top of your outline, the title of our message this morning is Jesus is the Doctor You Need to See. We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. And in this passage, we'll see that Jesus is the Doctor that will heal you and me. He is the answer for all of our deepest problems, our deepest longings, our worries, our fears, our hopes, and our dreams. And the great news is that the Doctor is accepting patience. He is here. The line is forming to go see him. Will you get in line? Or will you turn away? That's the question. Let's pray and get into the text. God, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you that you are the great physician. You're the doctor 
that heals our deepest problems, our problem of sin, our problem of separation between man and God. You give us life, you give us meaning, and you help us to make sense of all things. Give us wisdom as we look into your word, change our hearts for your sake. Amen. If you look on your outline, there's four points. That corresponds to the four stories we're going to look at in our text this morning. And what I'm going to do is go through each one one at a time, rather than read the whole thing at once. If you have a Bible from the, uh, from the church that was handed out, it's on page 543. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 2 and 3, or sections of it. We're going to start in verse 13 of chapter 2. So with you, if you would uh, read along with me. Verse 13. He went out again but beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. And his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's make some observations. So Jesus had crowds with him from before, if you remember. The crowds are still here. (coughs) Jesus passes by a tax collector's station on the road. And this is sort of like the, uh, the place that you have to check your goods in for sales tax. You know, back then it's on sort of the, the main road. Uh, you can think of it as sort of the paying your, your uh, fee on the turnpike, the toll booth. Think of it kind of like that. And uh, Levi is the tax collector there who's going to collect the taxes, and those taxes go to the Roman uh, government. And that was the country that had sort of dominated the Jews. They were ruling over the Jews at that point, so he was working for them. Jesus goes by as this guy's doing his job, and he says, follow me. He gets up, and he follows Jesus. And then later that day, presumably, they have Jesus over for a meal, and there's a bunch of people there. And there's these Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are there too. And in verse 16, they had this accusation. They say, why is he eating with these people? Why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? You know, what's behind that statement is, okay, if Jesus is this great good Israelite rabbi teacher, why is he doing this? This doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't associate with these people. Remember, the Romans overtook their country. They weren't free people. They were oppressed. They were ruled by this other nation, this ungodly nation. And so the tax collectors who worked for them, it would naturally be seen as people who had betrayed their country. And naturally, you would want to avoid them if you were Jewish. So it kind of makes sense. Why is Jesus doing this? So Jesus overhears this this comment, this question, and in verse 17 he answers, and he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus compares himself to a doctor, and he wants those who are sick to come to him, and he's going to heal them. So what does all this mean? You know, I, I, I once read somewhere, I can't even remember where, but it stuck with me. There was this person who was religious. They obviously didn't follow Jesus, but they actually used this quote as justification for not following Jesus. They're like, well, Jesus, 
He, even Jesus said, he's only for those people, not for us, so we don't have to follow him. That's how the thinking went. You know, crazy, right? But that's what Jesus is getting at. It's the heart of the matter. People like that, and people like the Pharisees here, they miss who Jesus really is. He didn't fit a lot of people's expectations, but he came to save desperate people. He came to heal those who wanted to be healed. He says it's the sick who need a doctor. Now, if you look at this story we just read, where does it say that Levi or anybody in his house was actually sick? It doesn't. You know, as far as we know, we can just assume they're all like, you know, spry and young and healthy and, and doing great in life. It doesn't say that they were physically sick. But what is Jesus getting at? He is getting at a sickness that you cannot see or detect with your five senses. You might feel like you're great, but you might have this sickness. In fact, you do have the sickness down inside of you. And Jesus' answer points out to the Pharisees that they have this sickness too, but they don't realize it. Here they are worried about cultural, political, and religious implications of a rabbi eating at a tax collector's house. But Levi and his co-workers, his family, and everybody else that's there, they know they needed Jesus. They know that they were sick on the inside. Or in other words, they knew that they were not righteous. They knew that they were not right with God. And Jesus was the only way that they would get help. So how does this apply? Two applications that I want you to take to heart. One is how we see ourselves and how we see others. First, how, you, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as spiritually healthy or spiritually sick? Consider, are you right with God? What's your relationship with God like? What would God say to you if you died at this moment? What would he say about your life? Would he say, you tried your best, but it's not good enough? You must pay for your sin? Or will he say, you trusted in Jesus, and I see my son in you, and you will get his reward? Are you like the Pharisees who maybe think, oh, there's all these other bad people out there and they, they need help, but we're good. I'm, I'm kind of good. You know, it's so easy to see ourselves as healthy. You know, I'm convicted uh, as I was looking at this passage that there's so much of my life that I view with a, a healthy spiritual um, view. It mostly comes out that I don't think about it. Um, I live so much of life without des any desperation or hint of desperation for God's help. You know, so again, I think of myself as pretty good. And there are those other bad people out there. You know, so I do things like I run errands, I go to the store, uh, I watch sports, even go to church. And the whole time, there's no hint of desperation that 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 I need help from God. No, so little acknowledgement that in my heart. What I really am doing is I'm trying to live a life apart from God. And like I said, it's easy to tell ourselves, oh, there's those other people who need help, but not me. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at here, is how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as desperate and needy, your true condition? Or are you good and there's those other people out there who really need it? Because if you see yourself as healthy, Jesus says, he didn't come for you. He came for the sick, not the healthy, for the desperate people. So how do you see yourself? And secondly, how do you see other people? Jesus associated with those who the, whom the religious establishment shunned. 
We may, we may even say the local people shunned or the local culture shunned. And think about that. Who is that for you today? Who is that around us, around you? Is there anybody that, or any group you would think it would be wrong for you to be seen with them or to give them help because they're not, quote-unquote, worth it? And if you need any help with that one, look on Facebook. I was just doing that the other day, you know, scrolling through. And there are so many people that, you know, that you're friends with. If you send your request, I'll, I'll friend you. You know, like it kind of doesn't mean a whole lot. But that means there's a lot of people on there who I disagree with. And there's all the time thinking, oh, I wouldn't associate with them. Wait a minute. Okay. So that's one idea. One application, though, is consider someone this week to associate with and show love to who you might normally avoid. Put it into practice. And don't worry about what people think. You know, sick people healed by the master. Um, who are truly healed, consider this. You don't have any problem giving out referrals, do you, of a doctor who healed you? What about Jesus who healed you? So reach out to those people. So Jesus came for desperate people, and only the desperate will come to him and be healed. He does not discriminate on, how, on you or how bad you are. You get healed if you come to him. That's the deal. Let's move on to the second story. The old is gone, the new has come. Mark 2, 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unstruck cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine bursts the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's make some observations here. Uh, so there's this question about fasting. Again, uh, the people, uh, or in this case, it's the, the people, it doesn't say the Pharisees. But there's the question of Jesus and maybe his legitimacy. Like, how serious is this guy? Like, John the Baptist's disciples fast. The Pharisees' disciples fast. But Jesus' disciples, they don't. Is he sort of, like, lax on things or sort of not that, not that uh, serious? So his dedication and authority, uh, authenticity are questioned. Uh, if you look in the, in the Old Testament, there really was only one required day of fasting, and that's on the Day of Atonement. That's Leviticus 16.29. So they didn't have to, uh, but that was this, sort of the expectation. And sometimes these guys would fast twice a week. So they were pretty serious. So Jesus, in his answer, he compares himself to a bride and, uh, and a groom at a wedding. And when you're at a wedding, you don't act like it's a funeral. Like, it's time to party. And Jesus says there's a problem because this is a wedding atmosphere. This is a celebratory atmosphere. You guys are missing it. And then Jesus gives two more analogies about the sewing, the patch, and the wineskins. So you don't sew an untrunk patch onto a piece of garment because it'll tear and make it worse. And if you pour uh, wine into an old wineskin, it ferments in there, and the bag has already been stretched and if it stretches more, it breaks. So you need a new one that hasn't been stretched out yet. So what does this mean? Well, again, it might seem reasonable if you're in the situation viewing it that if John's disciples were fasting 
and the Pharisees' disciples were fasting, that Jesus' disciples were fasting. But they don't. They were looking, by doing all this fasting, one of the things that they were doing, and it's helpful to realize, is that they were picturing what was to come. And that was like what was the, the, the fasting on the Day of Atonement. It was to picture what was to come, the fulfillment of all things, the, day, the time when you don't need to fast, when the Savior has come, when the atonement has been provided for. And Jesus is hinting at that by telling them that I am the bride. This is the, or I'm the bridegroom. This is the wedding feast. The Day of Atonement is finding its fulfillment in me right now. The old covenant is gone. The new has come. He is the true sacrificial offering before God that will take away sin once and for all. So Jesus says, when these analogies about the, so you can't fix the clothing and you can't do the old wineskin, he's trying to get at that those old ways are, are fading away and the new has come. And he is the new. And that instead of, uh, he, he's met with questioning and doubt, he should be met with celebration and excitement because the Savior's here. How does this apply? Well, it means that the old way, the way that you used to think about Jesus needs to go. You may have thought that your earnestness to come to church, to pray really hard, or to, to, to add up a lot of good things, good deeds in your life, that when you die that, that, that you'll, you'll get into heaven because of all those things. That's the old way of thinking about Jesus, and that needs to go. They're all useless methods. They're like the two things here of sewing the garment on or pouring new wine into old wineskins. It's not going to work. Now, I like to fix things. I like to repair things. This is right up my alley. I especially like electronic things. I love it when you know there's this thing going very fast towards the landfill, and I'm able to capture it and repurpose it and fix it and send it back to usefulness. I love that. It gives such a joy. But I have a big problem. Just like everyone else, I think that I take that way of doing things and I apply it to my life. I think, oh, I can fix my life. I can do it. You know, that, 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 that thing that's the, uh, un, uh, the, the pat that needs to be patched? Oh, I can patch that. Oh, that wineskin? Oh, that's not a problem. But in reality, I can't. I can't fix my life. You can't fix your life. It will fail. Your attempts to do it will fail. You can't fix your own life. So the application is to throw away your old life. Like, get rid of it. Let that one go to the landfill, because that's, that's actually good. Because the replacement is free, and it's really nice. It's a new life that Jesus gives you. And you've probably seen or heard of, um, hopefully this isn't you. If it is, it's another application. But the people who, who hoard things, like you go into their house and you can't even walk among the stuff because there's so much junk everywhere? Is that a picture of your life? All this baggage and junk that you're carrying around? Maybe it's sin that you're ashamed of, either that you committed or someone committed against you. All this stuff, God wants us to throw it away and embrace the new life. Come to Jesus and he'll heal you. He'll give you a new life. He'll do the right Right now, turn away from your sin and seek his healing. 
So Jesus reminds his audience that he's doing something new. Those who follow him will get forgiveness and true life, but they must throw away their old life. Jesus is not a, a bolt-on or an add-on. It's a whole new life that he gives. Let's move on to the third story. Don't miss the point. Chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so this one's very interesting. The, uh, the accusation here that Jesus is getting, and if you notice the theme here, is getting an accusation every time. The accusation here is that Jesus' disciples are breaking the, one of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments says you are to do no work on the Sabbath day. This is the Sabbath day, and they're walking along, and they're picking heads of grain, and the Pharisees are like, ha, you are a two-bit rabbi. You're letting your guys get away with breaking the Sabbath, and you're doing nothing about it. Okay, that's what's going on here. He's a two-bit rabbi who doesn't care about God's law. All right, so Jesus defends his disciples. He tells this uh, story and says, or asks this question, have you never read about what David did? And he tells, the, 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 he's referencing the story about how David uh, went to this high priest and, and ate the bread of presence, which he wasn't supposed to do, and he gave it to his other people. And that's his answer. And then he says, the Son of Man, or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Lord, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is doing here is bringing up an Old Testament story in 1 Samuel 21. And, and this, is, this is really important, and we'll get into it in a second. Uh, but there's sort of a, an issue here because uh, kind of technically only the priests were supposed to eat the bread of, of the, the showbread, the bread of presence, and, and you can go back and read about that. We don't have time to get into it. Leviticus 24.9 says that the bread was for Aaron and his sons, the priests. Um, but Jesus is referencing the story in, in, the, in response to this accusation that the disciples are breaking God's law. They're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so that's his response. Let's get into it here. What does this mean? This story is a little bit difficult to interpret, but I, I want to show you what I think Jesus is really getting at. Again, Deuteronomy 5.12 says, You should do no work on the Sabbath. So, does picking grain count as breaking the Sabbath? The Pharisees say, yes, it does. And again, Jesus cares little about God's law in their view. And Jesus defends his disciples again, and he says, It's okay for them to eat like this because of what David did and David's situation. And if you go back and read it, David technically wasn't supposed to eat the bread nor did he eat the bread. You're supposed to eat it in a holy place. He doesn't do that even. So this is a little bit of like controversy here. What's going on? I think that every time you read this story, if you've read it more than once, you have this question. I certainly have. 
And it's very easy to focus on the legal, you know, the quote-unquote legal aspects of this story. And you wonder, is Jesus really condoning this? You know, um, in the story of David, David lied to the priest, even, to get the bread. So is Jesus condoning lying and breaking the law? Is he saying you could do this if it's convenient, if you're hungry? Hey, if you're hungry, you can break God's law. Is he really saying that? I don't think so. What I think Jesus is getting at by quoting the story of David and the bread is that he's trying to draw a parallel between the current situation with the, the Pharisees and him and his disciples and the situation that David faced. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but let me, let me tell you a little bit about the background of the story, and I think you'll see what's happening here. King David, if you remember, he was, he was anointed king. This is about a 1,000 years before Jesus. The king at the time was King Saul, and he was bad. And God anointed a new king and said, this, this will be the new king. And David, if you read the Bible, he is a foreshadowing of the true king of Israel, who will ultimately be Jesus, a picture of the true Messiah. And in the story in 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is so upset, he tries to kill David because he's jealous and he knows that he's the new anointed one. So Saul is trying to kill David. And in the story where he goes to the priest and asks for the bread, he's running for his life. Even though he was the king, he was anointed king, the king, Saul, was trying to kill him. See any parallels yet? So after David leaves the priest in the story, Saul, the king, finds out about it. And you know what he does? He kills the whole town of priests. It says it kills 85 priests and their whole family, women and children, because he was so mad and upset. So, I think the main point here is not necessarily that the Pharisees are taking the Sabbath law too strictly, although I think that they, they are, but much more so, the greater point is that they are missing the entire point of the Old Testament. They're missing the entire point of that, ten, that one commandment and the Ten Commandments of obeying the Sabbath. Because Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one that came. He's the true king. He came to bring rest to them. That they don't, they don't have to, there's no way they can earn favor with God. And here they missed it. He was right there with them and they missed it. And they're fighting about these other things. I think that's what's really going on here. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He came to bring true rest. So what does this mean for us? The Pharisees missed the point of life. He was standing there right next to them, and they missed it. Now, can this happen to you or me? I think it can. How differently do you act if you know the Savior was with you? And do you miss the point of where you're at in life? This, um, oh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I had to uh, get a shuttle ride home because my car wasn't available. And so the person giving me the shuttle ride is someone who does this uh, for a living. And I got to engage in conversation, uh, and he asked me some questions. And uh, it turns out that, uh, that he was a Christian. And, and you know, in our very short car ride, uh, he, he just had a profound impact on my life. Because what he said was, God's provision for this job is so amazing. And he told me some of the story. He said, but now I have the opportunity to share about Jesus with anyone who comes in my car just for that short little trip. 
And, and he said something that was, was um, he said a couple of things that were amazing. He said, people from all over the world who I know, all around the world know that I have this opportunity and they're praying for me. And they're praying for the people who sit in that seat. It's like, wow. And he said, he said this, he said, we are all like pinballs in a pinball machine, finding ourselves in all kinds of situations and circumstances. And we have the opportunity to share about Jesus. And he kind of said, you just never know what's going to happen. And I was like, wow, like, that's awesome. This guy knew what it was be like, to be like to be with the Savior and to have Jesus with him and to see the opportunity in, in the job that he had and with the people that he interacted with. It got my attention. And his comment even helped me to share the gospel with somebody later that day that I probably would have just, you know, you know in the busyness of life, missed the opportunity. So how can you celebrate Jesus and not miss the point of where you're at in life and why, where God has you? What about what any changes that, that you need to make to, uh, to see God at work in your life and not miss out on Him and not be so busy that you miss Him? Maybe your application is to learn more about who Jesus is if you don't know Him. In that case, I would encourage you to read your Bible, to pray, ask lots of questions. Jesus said, I will never turn away anyone who comes to me. He won't turn you away. Go to him. So Jesus is, so the point here is, Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees that he is the promised Messiah. He is the anointed one like David, but he is the true fulfillment of all the Old Testament. And here they were missing the point. Now finally, the diagnosis and the prescription. Verse 3. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They've been doing a lot of that lately. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. That means they wanted to kill him. So what's going on here? This is, again, a scene on the Sabbath. And verse 2 makes it clear that the Pharisees are there to accuse him. So there's a little bit of a setup here. Uh, but Jesus uh, sees right through it. He calls the man over, man with the withered hand. And they're, they're trying to see, will he, will he heal this guy on the Sabbath? Because in their mind, that's work, and Jesus is breaking the commandment again. And so Jesus asks a question. Is it, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill it? But they're silent. They don't answer. You know, really it's an easy question. The answer is, it's okay to do good and to give life on the Sabbath. It's easy. But they don't answer. They're silent. And Jesus is angry. Why don't they answer? It says in verse 5, it says, Because their hearts were hard. The hardness of their heart. And Jesus heals the man. He brings good on the Sabbath. He brings life on the Sabbath. And what is their reaction? Verse 6. Their immediate reaction is to go out and plan his death. So, 
In this essence, this is their answer. Yes, it's okay to bring harm and kill on the Sabbath. All right. Oof. What does this mean? Well, it's in this section here that we see the condition of, of every human heart. There are two sicknesses described here. One, you see the man with a shriveled hand. This is the obvious sickness. And then there's the not-so-obvious sickness, the hard hearts. The Pharisees had it worse than this man. I mean, look what it led them to do. Their hardness of heart, their disbelief, led them to kill the Savior, to break the commands that they thought they were even upholding. They think that they're healthy. This is why hardness of heart is one of the wicked, one of the wickedest of sins and, and, and worst of all sicknesses. You know, a lot of us are, are tired and physically suffering, physically sick, and I don't want to diminish that, but I want to put it into perspective. That if your heart is hard, or if your, your heart is hard, that's worse than all those things, than any physical ailment. And that's the number one priority that you need to take care of. Remember the doctor? He can deal with that. Because if you don't, you're going in the direction of verse 6. Like, you have to deal with the doctor. I mean, he's like in your face. And if you have hardness of heart, you're either going to fall at his feet or you're going to try to get rid of him. Like, he's just bothering you. And in this case, they physically kill him or plan to kill him. They will, eventually. And in our hearts, if we don't deal with the hardness, we're, we're, we're killing off Jesus in our hearts, in a sense. And so, we have to deal with this hard heart. Remember the uh, remember the fortune cookie? You, you should really get that checked out. You need to know if you have a hard heart or not. Because like I said, hard hearts reject Jesus. So what are the symptoms of a hard heart? Well, looking at the story, we see that one of the indications is, is you try to protect yourself when you get a softball question, you know? Because what happens? What's going on here? Jesus asked the question and they didn't answer because they didn't want to get exposed. They didn't want their hearts to be revealed of, of what they really believed and who they really were. So how does this apply to us? Well, think about these situations in revealing what's going on in your own heart. What about when someone hurts you? How do you respond? What about someone says, hey, can we talk about that thing that happened? You know, do you hole up? Or are you saying, you know, God's in control and I can hear and I can talk about this? What about when someone gives you feedback? Or what about when you have to ask for help and maybe you're afraid to or pr too proud to do it? Maybe I'm too scared to. What about when you get angry? Urgh. What about when you feel ignored or overlooked? What's going on in your heart? In all of these things, the application is to go to Jesus, to the doctor. Jesus told the man to hold out his hand. And I think that's significant. I mean, he could have just healed it while it was like limp at his side. But he said, hold it out. Bring it out. Come towards me with your hand and it'll be healed. So I encourage you to do the same. Hold your hand out. Move toward Jesus. He will not turn you away. 
Give up your weak and useless life. Don't try to fix it. Allow yourself to be exposed and vulnerable before him with your heart. Otherwise, that disease will fester. And you will end up killing off Jesus in your life, in your heart. All right, so final point here, though. If you think this whole time, that this whole message, you've been thinking about other people. And you're like, wow, I know some people that really need to hear this. Okay, there's a problem. Because this whole message has been about you. It's been about me. And that might be an indication that you need to go see the doctor. You need to come to Jesus. Every man, every woman is sick from the disease of sin, and we need help. We are desperate daily. Jesus even gave an analogy to another point. He said, can you even add an hour to your life? Like, you have no control, or very little control, I should say, over your life. You can't even add an hour to it. And so we are desperate people in need of a Savior. Also, think about the man who, who was healed. Can you imagine that after his hand was, was uh, you know, restored, he pulls it up, and it's like, whoa. Do you think he said at that moment, yes, I did it. Mm, I'm good. Wow, I tried so hard, and it paid off, all that hard work. No. I am sure he was in disbelief and shock that it actually happened. And, and can you imagine later on in his life if he was like, man, yeah, I, I remember that, and I, I worked hard to, uh, to get my hand here. Like, No. And so, well, same with our salvation. We are daily dependent on God to forgive us. We didn't earn it. He gives it to us. He asks that we give up our old life to accept the new one. It's a very good deal. All right, so come to Jesus. He's the only one that can heal you. Celebrate him in your life because he has saved you, and you owe him your life. This morning we're going to celebrate communion and celebrate Jesus dying for us. This doctor who gave up his life to heal our sins and infirmities. Could we have a musician come on up and play for us? You know, we didn't read all of Mark's gospel, but in the end, Jesus is killed by the Roman officials and the Pharisees. They do conspire and they do have him killed. But on the night before Jesus died, it happened to be the Passover, which for thousands of years had been celebrated in anticipation of that moment where God would provide ultimate covering. The Bible uses the word atonement to take care of all the sin. And Jesus was going to do it. He was celebrating it in this meal. And once a month, it's our practice as a church to celebrate this meal together. And you can see up front here, there's some bread and some juice. And that's what we're going to do here. We're going to celebrate that Jesus died and rose again for our, our, our behalf to heal all of our sin. He died on a cross that we could be free. He's the doctor that cures our disease by giving up his life so we can have life. Let me read 1 Corinthians 11. This says a little bit about what we're going to do here. This is Paul writing to a church. He says, From what I received from the Lord, what I also pass on to you, 
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For wherever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What I'd like to do is just take a, a, a brief minute here, if you want to close your eyes or, or you don't have to, but examine your own heart before you come and take of, of the bread and the, and the juice together. I want you to think about how Jesus has rescued you. Maybe there's an area of hardness in your heart that you need to turn away from. And then I'll call us up. Um, uh, after, after I'll pray and call us up. Um, but let me say also, too, that this celebration is for those who believe in Jesus, who have trusted in him with their whole heart. And if that's not you or if you're unsure, then you can stay seated as we come up to take the elements. That, that's, that's okay. You can stay there. Uh, because if you do come up, you'll be applying verse 26 where it says that you're publicly proclaiming the Lord's death and resurrection and you want Jesus to come back. So if you're unsure about that, just please, you can have a seat. That's okay. Let's take a moment to examine our hearts and then I'll pray. Lord, we uh, don't deserve to come to you. We don't deserve healing. Um, we don't even deserve to know about your healing. And yet you offer it to us freely. Help us to be men and women of faith. Men and women who know our desperation and know the healing that you give. Thank you for dying for us and thank you for this remembrance. Amen. You guys on the first row want to head on up. I'm going to go one row at a time. Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, thank you. We can't thank you enough and can't celebrate enough how you have pulled us out of darkness. You've made a way for us to have life. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for this reminder 
that Jesus, you gave everything for us. You do not discriminate, and you heal all who come to you. Thank you. Amen. Let us stand.